the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday program. That means we have successfully made it to the end of another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 630- Five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, lots going on this weekend, as is always the case tonight here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to be having an afterglow service. No Bible study tonight. Uh, it is our practice when we finish a book uh, to have a, an afterglow on Friday night before we go on to the next book. Next Friday night, I'm going to be uh, starting the book of Colossians, one of my very favorite books to teach. So that will be next week. But tonight is an afterglow. And probably you're all thinking, what is an afterglow? Uh, it's a time when the body gets to minister to itself. The gifts of the Spirit will flow words of knowledge, words of wisdom, words of encouragement and exhortation, those kind of things will be going on. And simply people in the body that that the Lord will move on and they'll have a verse to give or an exhortation to give or, uh, again, hopefully words of wisdom or words of knowledge. Uh, And uh, we will be here for an hour ministering to ourselves. It's always a really, really, really great time. So that's tonight. It will not be live streamed because it's impossible to get everybody microphones, uh, but we will be uh, enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in a little bit different way than when we're just teaching the Word. On Sunday, I'm going to be teaching in the book of Acts. We're actually in Corinth now, in Acts chapter 18. So that's where our Bible study begins. And wherever it is that you go to church and whatever it is that you are doing um, on Sunday, uh, go to church, open your heart to the Lord and say, Jesus, uh, how can I be a blessing to other people? Don't go to get blessed. You will get blessed, but don't let that be your motive. Instead, go to be a blessing for others. Jesus, who's hurting? Who needs prayer? Who's a little bit lonely? Who can I comfort? If you'll do that, the Lord, I promise, will use you to be a blessing to others, and you'll find out what being blessed is all about as well. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls and or email questions. I want to begin with uh, John's question from yesterday. Um, 
John from San Antonio asked about the three woes, and I didn't have my my computer program up. It was kind of on the fritz, so I couldn't see it, and I can't read the the, the Bible that's on my desk, so uh, I didn't have the answer. John, I apologize again for that. But you asked about the three woes, what the third woe is in that series. Um, the, 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 the three woes are so horrible that... Uh, on the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet judgments, just before they're unleashed, um, the the eagles flying through the air pronouncing, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, the first two woes that you figured out, uh, they were in the judgments of the fifth and the sixth seals. And, and this is, is not the end of the Great Tribulation, but it begins... Uh, uh, or, or it's just the ending of the seal, or I'm sorry, the trumpet judgment. Uh, the third woe is the seventh trumpet. Now, I need to explain this because if you go back, John, to the uh, beginning of the book, the seven seals uh, start this off. The seventh seal is the sixth trumpet judgment. The same thing is true with the trumpet judgments. When you get to the seventh trumpet judgment, the sixth, the seventh seal, rather, contains the bowl judgments, and those, of course, are the worst of all of them, uh, and that's why the, the eagle pronounced the woe. I felt like I had to sneeze. I'm going <laughs> to. Okay, I'm back. You know, that's terrible when you're going to sneeze and you can't just sneeze right away, but that's what happened. Well, John, the the, the seventh trumpet is the seven bold judgments. And because those are the worst judgments, that is the worst woe of all. I, I find it frightening a little bit, uh, but also interesting that uh, after all the terrible stuff that have happened with the, the seal judgments and the first four trumpet judgments, um, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet judgments are so bad that heaven pronounces a woe for those those uh, judgments. So, John, that's what was going on uh, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 9. And then, of course, it goes all the way into Revelation chapter 13 to complete the judgments that will virtually end the book of Revelation. John, thank you for the question yesterday. And again, I apologize for not having um, the information at hand yesterday. Here's a question from Terrence. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, would you talk about being a Christian parent and what we can do to make sure our kids continue in their faith? Terrence, I love talking about this. This is so important. You know, the problem is that we parents, we want formulas. Okay, well, I'm going to make them go to church. I'm going to make them sit down with family devotions. I'm going to make them sit down and pray with the family. Um, None of those things uh, will do anything to make sure your kids continue in their faith. Two things. I'm going to take this first clinically, and then I'm going to take this uh, emotionally, and I think also spiritually, Terrence. The first thing is you need to catechize your kids. And by that, I mean they need to understand what they believe and why they believe it. It's not good enough anymore to say, well, mom and dad believed it, so I believe it. Uh, That's not good because their faith is going to be challenged at every turn. So it's not good enough to say, well, uh, I was raised in church, so I just believe without questioning, especially with access to social media, Terrence. Um, The kids simply need to be able to find answers. And our faith is a reasonable faith. By that, I mean we can reason through the word. We can answer their questions. We don't have to be afraid of their questions. You know, when kids go out in the world, well, well, if two people just love each other, what's wrong with that? Why doesn't God? We don't have to be afraid of those questions. We can open the Bible and stand on the holiness of God, and we can let your children know this is exactly why these things can't happen. So um, catechize them. Doctrine needs to be something they understand, not just a casual reading. It's one of the reasons, Terrence, that at our church here at Calvary, uh, we don't have our kids telling, you know, telling them cute Bible stories or children's Bible books. Uh, Our kids, from the time they're out of the toddler room, uh, they're getting the Bible. In fact, in our toddler room, they're getting the Bible. And, and we teach our children's ministries verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, obviously, they do it at a different level than I do it with their adult, with their parents. Uh, but we teach them the Bible. And these kids get it. They understand it. 
They're open. They're vulnerable to the things of God. And so we take advantage of that. And the Word of God, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working through the power of God in the Word uh, convinces them. And many kids, um, they know what it is that they believe in. And, and it's not just a feeling or it's not just mom and dad's faith. You know, one of the things, Terrence, is that your kids are going to be given their own tree of choice. Just like Adam and Eve was, were, were given a tree of choice. Your kids, whether it's in, in, in the world that they live in, on social media, when they go to college, when they enter the work world, uh, they're going to be given that tree of choice. They have to make their own decision. They have to make their own decisions about what to do with Jesus Christ. Mom and dad's faith no longer works, and they need to have something tangible to hold on to. The moment that first college professor makes them feel like an idiot for being a Christian, they've got to be able to say, no, no, I know in whom I believe. So that's very, very important. We need to be able to to help them understand our very reasonable faith. In fact, Terrence, let me suggest a couple of books, and these are small ones, easy to read but effective uh, one of them, uh, actually, it's it's a companion pair uh, by Paul Little, uh, L-Y-T-T-L-E, and it's called Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe, two separate books, and they're available on Amazon, and, and they're just simple and, and understandable. Another uh, series of books that I find interesting and, and valuable are Lee Strobel's books, The Case For, The Case for the Bible, uh, The Case for Christ, uh, the case for the resurrection. Uh, he's got some books. And again, it's not over anybody's head. He can do that. Now, there's some really deep stuff if moms and dads want to dig in. But but your children will just have a, an understanding of what this means, why it's important, and why we believe it. So I think that is essential. Now, having said that, as important as it is, the second thing that a parent can do and needs to do is to live their faith Uh, Live their faith out with consistency. Live their faith out with passion. uh, Live their faith out with joy. You see, one of the things, Terrence, that makes our kids vulnerable when they go away to school and they go away into the work world, um, um, you know, they've seen Jesus misrepresented in their home, a mom and dad who argue and yell at each other and say horrible things to each other, uh, a, a, a home life that is unsettling, uh, a, a dad, I guess, give an example. My father, he would say, Ronnie, do as I say and not as I do. That doesn't cut it anymore. So the most important thing, Terrence, that a Christian parent can do is to walk the walk themselves. It has to be genuine. It's not a fake it till you make it. It's not trying to fool the kids. But you've got to be in private who you say you are in public. The family gets up and goes to church, drags their kids to church, and then the the home life is a battleground. The home life is filled with tension and turmoil and a lack of peace. Uh, Those kids are going to get really disgusted at the idea of even being in church. So very, very important to live your faith in a way that rightly represents the Lord. Unless your children benefit from the reality of your faith, Terrence, they're not going to want what you have. They're not going to want who you have. And so what we need to do is demonstrate to them that mom and dad's Jesus is real. He's a source of joy. He's a source of strength. And when troubles come and they come, and we ought also to explain to our kids that troubles in life are going to come. But Jesus is always there. They need to see, Terrence, you running to Jesus when things are difficult in your life not trying to handle it on your own, not keeping secrets. We need to be open books. And if we'll do that, then I promise you, uh, your kids will have something they can hold on to. That doesn't mean they're all going to make the right choice. But it means they'll be able to have a frame of reference, a godly frame of reference to say, I want mommy and daddy's Jesus. My last word on this is simple. Terrence, we ought to be able to say to our children, Uh, as Paul was able to say to his son, the faith, Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ, or follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If we can't say that, then we're not living a life consistent with what we claim to believe. Thank you, Terrence. I appreciate it very, very much.
Here's a question from Natty. Here's Natty's question. What is the difference between tithing and giving or offering? Um, Natty, the, the difference is uh, pretty simple. Tithing is an Old Testament law. Jews are required to give several different tithes. Now, tithe means a tenth. Now, what I'm about to say just sort of destroys the logic of that. But Jews actually gave between 25 and 28 percent to the different offerings that were there. But but uh, there would be a tithe that would go into the temple treasury. There would be a tithe that would go to support uh, the Levites or the priests. Uh, and then there would be other offerings, offerings for the poor and things like that. And And they were commanded, they were compelled by the law to do so. Now, in the New Testament church, Natty, unfortunately, we've taken this issue of tithing and we've extrapolated it into the New Testament. And by that I mean we've inserted, that's not exegesis, that's eisegesis, we've inserted the idea that everybody ought to give a tenth. And and, and some will even rationalize, well, that's just a good place to start, but there's more. Um, there's no law. Uh, that the New Testament believer is under that says we ought to give 10%. And that's, again, a tithe means a tenth. So giving is the New Testament standard, or uh, some will say love offering. I don't like that so much because it seems manipulative to me. But, but Natty, we're free from the law. We're under a new covenant. And the new covenant example of giving is given to us by the Apostle Paul. He said, God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. And we're to give freely. We're to give obediently and joyfully, not under compulsion. And we're to give because it is our heart's desire to give. And there's no amount that's mentioned. So what we give is what God has put in your heart. Now, here's part of the problem, and I think this is a lot of the reason, Natty, that a lot of New Testament churches uh, push tithing, is because a lot of people, they think, will just say, well, God just put in my heart to give you a few bucks. Uh, well, they don't trust God very much, and so they try to compel you to give at least 10%. It helps them budget. Obviously, churches cost a lot of money to run. Uh, there are, are facilities, maintenance, there are uh, utilities, there are, are, are employee costs, insurance costs, all kinds of things. That, and church is expensive. So it's easy to budget. If I can get everybody to make a pledge to me to give 10% of their income, somebody makes $60,000 a year, then uh, I can get them to, to, to commit to me giving $500 a month. And so if I can get all those commitments and add them up, then I know how to budget. And then I can put pressure on the people who don't follow through with their obligations, those kind of things. I think that dishonors the Lord. I really and truly do. And I think God would do so much more for all of us if we gave him the chance. Now, at, at our church, and I'm, I, I use our church as an example, obviously, because it's the one I'm familiar with. We never let our needs be known, Natty. We don't uh, ever ask for money. We don't pass an offering plate. We don't have a, an offertory song. Um, we, we simply have offering boxes in the sanctuary and out in our little mini foyer and tell people, look, if you give to the Lord, do so because God's put on your heart and because it pleased you to do so. And that's all we really say about about giving. But but to confuse it with the tithe, which which is a law, and, and, and Jesus established a completely new covenant, is not really being scripturally honest or consistent with what the Word says. And I just think a lot of times, Natty, uh, we New Testament pastors, we don't have enough faith to really trust the Lord. By the way, if you've ever thought about radio programs, listen to radio programs. It, it really grieves me. Now, I'm talking about people that are really gifted Bible teachers, people that I enjoy listening to. But on the radio, on television, they spend so much time asking for money or selling books instead of saying, well, look, God, you wanted me to be on the radio, so um, then I'm going to trust in you to provide. And, and uh, you know, the, the new trend, and you can see things change, but the new trend is to ask for money at the beginning. There's nine minutes, and then we ask again or sell stuff again, and then we come back and preach for a while. Nine minutes later, we do it again, and then at the end of the program, we do it again. So we've got four times we're asking people for money. 
And I really think that that also grieves the heart of God. So giving is what you give out of a cheerful, joyful, grateful heart. And the question that I would ask people who don't want to give is simply this. If the law that condemns requires 10%, how much more is grace worth? That doesn't compel you to give it all, but asks you to give everything you have. The Lord will speak to your heart, Nettie, about what to do, how much to give. Just be sure you're doing it with the right heart, the right motive, and doing it in a way that is, is bringing him honor and glory. Good question, Nettie. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Malachi says, What is the difference between an elder and an overseer in First Timothy chapter 3? Uh, Malachi, I don't think there's any difference at all, um, um, you know, in our church culture. And, and part of this is to comply with the laws of our uh, the, the, the United States and our local laws. Um, a lot of it's tied into tax exemptions. Have a corporation. Uh, you need to have uh, board members and or in a church a board of elders. But but in the New Testament, when Paul is telling Timothy to to uh, appoint elders in the churches, we need to remember that uh, churches, uh, at least in the first three centuries, were were almost solely house churches and they were spread all over and so when when people would get saved and they'd start different little churches uh, they were in the house and and Paul is telling Timothy Timothy appoint elders in those uh, uh, churches so that um, there'll be order and that's what it what it really was all about uh, Malachi um, but but the elder would be what we call a pastor the overseer that's the the term that you use. So the fact that in the 21st century, uh, and, and you know it's been for a long time, um, the fact that in the 21st century we have elders have a different meaning to it. That's more a function of complying with the law than anything else. I have a board of elders. All of them are are are, are here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I don't have people from the outside on a board. And we've got people who know and love the people that that uh, that we have. We're invested in these people, and that's what I want on my board. Uh, but they are not pastors. In in Timothy's instructions from Paul, uh, these are the men that we would call pastors. So pastor, overseer, uh, that's what bishop is translated as in some cases. So, um, practically speaking, there's no difference at all between an elder and a pastor or an overseer. We've been the ones that change that. And once more, that's a function of complying with the law. Okay, got time for one more question, I think, before the break. Here is a question from Tracy. She said, do you believe that praying changes anything? Tracy, I do. I don't understand why it does or even how it does, but I know it does. I know that just going through the Bible and listening to the prayers of people, uh, the intercessory prayers, the prayers of supplication and petition, those are prayers that change things. Why does God listen to the prayers of his people? Uh, I think in large part it's because God puts those prayers desires uh, for those prayers in our heart. And he functions in a way that, you know, if I was God, I'd be released to do what I want to do and short circuit all the, the people who are praying. But God has chosen to work through people and our prayers. And I know prayer changes things because prayer changed me when Paula was praying for me. For all of those years, prayer changed me now for me it was long it was arduous I was a a, a hard-headed hard-hearted jerk um, but but God answered her prayers and used the time that she was praying to also change her and I think that's one of the marvelous things about our relationship to God He's always working all of the angles together and so yes. 
I know that prayer changes things. I know that we're commanded to pray. And when we act in obedience and when our the motive of our heart is right, God answers prayer. You know, James, the Lord's half-brother, said that uh, that we, we, we pray but do not receive because we don't ask or because we ask amiss or some translations say with the wrong motive. So we're given plenty of instructions to pray. Jesus himself gave us a model for prayer. He wouldn't have done that if it wouldn't change the heart and the mind of God. I know that God in particular uses prayer to change the person who's praying. And the more we talk to him, that's what prayer is, the more we become like the one to whom we're praying. Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate it. we got 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Your live calls and questions. Uh, um, if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question that came in anonymously. This one is from our email inbox. And he or she asks, a question regarding Wednesday night's teaching. You talked about drinking as doing that which is common. However, since God has called me to live holy, and he's also said that drinking, and in parentheses, not to become drunk, is permissible for me. How can that kind of drinking be common? God who has called me to live holy would not tell me it's permissible to do something outside the bounds of holy living. Have I misunderstood something? Yeah, Anonymous, I think you're conflating uh, the, the two concepts. You know, the Apostle Paul writes that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That's really important. I think that's the way we need to view this. Now, let me, for the audience, review. We were in the book of Leviticus, and we're being told to discern the, 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 the holy versus the unholy, or the, the, the holy versus the common or the profane. And one of the keys to living a life with Jesus Christ is for you and for me to make that same sort of distinction. And so many of us as Christians, we get caught up in the common things of this world. And while it's true we are called to live holy lives, it is also true that there are some things that God says, well, this is permissible. But it's our job to discern whether it's beneficial, whether doing it brings dishonor to the Lord or does it bring honor to the Lord. And when we're talking about drinking and drinking causing so much difficulty, and I want to make it clear, I cannot say that having a drink or drinking moderately is sin, we're all called anonymous to say, okay, Lord, is this something you want for me? And in fact, if you listen to Wednesday night's teaching, I even said, let me suggest the next time you're going to have a glass of beer, the next time you're going to pour a, an alcohol drink, um, just be, just fill up the glass and then before you do it, say, Lord, is this what you want for me? And too often we get caught up in the common. Now, drinking is very common. But we who are Christians are supposed to be set apart. So the fact that God says all things are permissible doesn't mean that all things are good, all things fit in with his will for our lives. It doesn't mean that all things uh, are something we should explore. What we should do, instead of seeing how much we can do and still be saved, anonymous, what we ought to do is say, okay, how sold out for the Lord can I be? And, 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 you know, we want to walk that tightrope. Now, I understand that there are some people who enjoy drinking. But I'm going to suggest to you that anybody has a drink every night just to take the edge off. Or, you know, when they've got free time, they've got to have a beer in their hands. Especially if there's children in the home. I'm going to suggest that that's probably not something you can, you can stop doing. If you can't stop doing it, then the practice owns you instead of the other way around. 
So drinking is just common behavior. We're not called to do common behavior. Now, there's a million other things I could say uh, in that regard. Smoking marijuana. Oh, it's okay, Pastor Ron. It's an herb, and it doesn't do as much damage as alcohol does. And No, it's a sin. We know that is the case. The other thing, I think when we're impaired, whether it's marijuana or alcohol, um, we're, we're not very wise at discerning that line where we stop being, uh, stop moderately drinking. And, uh, you know, I think it's just something that we've all got to ask the Lord. Um, I'm amazed. I, I'm absolutely amazed that parents raising children um, would, would openly demonstrate to their kids that drinking is okay. Because when they do, and this is without exception, when they do, when their children are hanging out with their friends and their friends are drinking beer, getting drunk, going to parties, then the kids are going to process it this way. Well, mom and dad drink. They're Christian, so it's okay if I drink. And, and the example we're setting for our own selfish desires simply isn't something that our kids should have to experience. So anonymous, that's what I meant. And we need not to do the common things. Now, just for everybody's information, the reason I brought up drinking is because it was in the passage. Nadab and Abihu were killed by God for offering unauthorized fire, unauthorized sacrifices or prayers. And and in this place where the holiness of God was on display and the glory of the Lord fell upon the place, um, the, 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 the context suggests that perhaps in their seven-day ordination period, maybe they had just a little bit too much to drink and they weren't exercising good judgment. And I can honestly say that if people are drinking regularly, they're not exercising good judgment. Now, I get a lot of pushback from this, but it, that the pushback itself demonstrates how people are committed to doing that which is common instead of doing that which is going to bring honor and glory to the Lord. I just think it's a simple question. Lord, what benefit do I get from drinking? Now, people will say, well, I like the taste, or I, I, just, I just like it with food. It doesn't matter. Lord, what benefit do I get from this? And again, with all of the damage that I see caused by alcohol, it would just be better off if Christian just said no. One other comment. I know we're free to do those things that are permissible. But there's nothing more fruitful than to use our freedom for the blessing of other people instead of to be blessed ourselves. That's when God can really use you. I've never had a drink of alcohol. I, I put some in my mouth that was so foul, I spit it out. That was in high school. And, well, I got I got to change now. Paula made me drink. But other than that, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. She, it just was a reflex action. Um, she, she ordered a, a non-alcoholic drink at a restaurant we went to with some friends, by the way. And um, um, she, she said, uh, does, does this have alcohol in it? And I picked up and smelled it because I'm really sensitive to it. I can smell it. I said, I think it does. And just without thinking, I took a sip of it. And, and I said, ooh, well, for sure it has alcohol. That's that's the only alcohol that's ever really gone down my throat. And I, I don't know what I was thinking because it was just horrible. But it had alcohol in it. So that's the whole point of that teaching uh, on Wednesday Night Anonymous. So thank you for asking the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Ken. Uh, where can I find more information about the Bible College? Ken, there isn't a lot of information about the Bible College. Now, Paul and I spoke about this on yesterday's program. Um, it's part of our vision. And the reason that there's no information is because it, it clearly wasn't time for, for, for us to start the Bible college uh, because we didn't have any space. We don't have any space. But we're moving to a place that's going to provide us five and a half times the space that we have now. Uh, and, Ken, that will unfold over the next eight to ten months. And uh, when when uh, uh, that happens, uh, one of the very first things that we're going to do is start a Bible college. And then on our website, of course, there will be a lot of 
information available. Now, I want to say one thing I can tell you for sure. The Bible College will be free. Everything that we do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is free. Um, it will be, it will function like a real Bible college. Um, uh, there will be regular hours and um, courses and that kind of thing. But one of the things that, that's been really distressing for me as a pastor is we, we just don't have any place that I feel comfortable sending these kids that are graduating from our school or who come to our church if they're interested in in further Bible education, and um, you know this has just been a burden on my heart, Ken, for a very very long time. So stay tuned, CalvarySA dot com, and as we get a little bit closer to our um, new facility opening up, and when I say new, it's not a, a new facility; it's very very old. But but we got to do a lot of remodeling and stuff. Uh, the Bible college will be one of the priorities that we have. Uh, in that building. One of the other priorities, of course, is more space for multi-medical and that kind of thing. So um, we will be working doing those kind of things. So, Ken, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Jason. Uh, he wants to know, why doesn't God just show himself to the world so there would be no doubt about whether or not he's real? Well, Jason, that's exactly what he did. Now, here's what I want you to to, to consider. If God came to the earth in the form of a man, and that man's life, short though it was, 33 and a little bit years, um, that man's life changed the world. That man proved, he claimed to be God, he proved he was God. Uh, when when they killed him, he didn't stay dead, just as he predicted would happen, just as the Bible said would happen. Um then the reason that he came was to demonstrate that God was, in fact, real. And we can know God through Jesus Christ. So, Jason, he's already done exactly what you asked him to do. Now, my question to you would be, why do you need him to do it again? You see, he's going to do that, Jason, but the next time he does that, he's going to make war on the world that's rejected him. He's coming the next time in judgment. He came the first time not to judge the world, but that through him the world might be saved. But the next time he comes, he's coming in judgment, and no one who rejects Jesus Christ will be spared. So right now, Jason, if he came, if he showed himself to the world, you would not be spared. So if God has already done what you want him to do, I don't know what you want him to appear in the eastern sky one morning and say, hey, world, it's really me. The truth is people wouldn't believe him anyway. He's already come. He's already demonstrated that there's no doubt about who he is or whether or not he's real. And you want him to do it all over again. I suggest, Jason, that there's some sin in your life you don't want to stop. And that's the thing that's really keeping you from believing that Jesus Christ really is God. So he's already done what you asked him to do. My challenge would be, Jason, are you ready to believe him now? Here is an anonymous question. Uh, He or she wants to know, what are red-letter Christians? Well, typically anonymous, they're not Christians at all. Um, Red-letter Christians are Christians or professing Christians who say, well, I place more emphasis on the words in red in our Bible, those are Jesus' words, than the rest of the Bible. In other words, I just study what Jesus said, but I don't study what the rest of the Bible says, because Jesus' words are more important. That's what a red-letter Christian, I like to say professing Christian, really is. But the reality, Anonymous, is that they don't understand at all their Bible. They don't understand how we got the Bible. They don't understand that the Bible says of itself that it is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart of the matter between soul and spirit. That it is inspired by God, literally the breath of God pushing the pins of men. And since the Holy Spirit is every bit as much as God as Jesus is, and in fact it was the Holy Spirit who directed Jesus' ministry and his words that we have in red, then we have to understand that every word in our Bible has just as much authority as every other word. They're all the words of God. They have to be taken in context. We need a study to show ourselves approved. Work men, work women, rightly dividing the word of God. 
But red-letter Christians are people who are trying to dismiss all of the, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and the others. And the reason they're doing it is because in those books, we're told about things that we can't do. And the reality is, we don't like being told what we can't do. And that's exactly what, what they're doing. So it's just it's just a way to circumvent the Word of God. You know, from the very beginning, way back with the Jewish scriptures, the Jews were always looking for loopholes. Well, here we are thousands of years later, and Christians are looking for loopholes. When Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, we say, I don't want to do that. When Paul says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, we say, but I don't want to do that. I love him or I love her. When Paul says, let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth. When Paul says that homosexuality is a sin and people who live like that won't inherit the kingdom of God. We just hate it so much it's easier to dismiss it altogether. And being a what we call a red-letter Christian, uh, anonymous, what that does is allows us to, to do what we want and rationalize in some fashion or form that we're going to go to heaven in spite of being disobedient. Thank you for the question. Let's go to our friend Greg from Bolverde on line one. Greg, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, just to let you know I enjoy your program all the time as, as usual, and I'm praying for God's anointing in your life that it will continue for many years and the building program will be finished at one day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I thank know that's you, a big goal. Uh, first off, uh, I want to know if uh, you have ever heard of the laminin molecule. It's a molecule that's actually in our bodies. Is that something you've ever been familiar with? No, Greg, I have no background. Okay, I, I encourage you to look it up. Just Google laminin molecule and what it is referred to as the cell adhesion molecule. And the scientific symbol of it is actually the sign of the cross. That molecule is throughout our bodies. They refer to it as the rebar that keeps our body together. So just Google it one day, and you'll be amazed at what that molecule is and what it looks like. Okay. Uh, question I have is um, I'm reading through Job and Acts. Uh, first off with Job, can you kind of give me, so that as I go through it, some things maybe I can be looking for that should get my attention and like a, a point, some points or a theme. And, and then in Acts, it seems that, uh, you know, the, of course, we know Jesus. Jesus was constantly didn't do anything without, you know, the Holy Spirit, his connection with the Holy Spirit even back then. But even as the apostles, you hear Paul talk about it, uh, they were really, really super in tune with the Holy Spirit. Uh, they could differentiate the difference between being led by the you know, voice of an angel and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit work the same today as he always as he did back then in the beginning, or did he really, I guess, put more you know hands-on effort to get the church started? Yeah, yeah, I, I, a great question, Greg, and I love the Acts question because. Um, from the beginning, um, I, let me go back before the beginning of the church. Jesus was led every minute of every day um, after the baptism of John by the Holy Spirit. It's when he veiled his deity. He never did anything to benefit himself. He only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. And Jesus was giving us an example. This is how we are going to walk in this world, once he's gone, he had that same conversation with his disciples. Now you've asked uh, uh, the Father for nothing, um, but now pray to the Father in my name. In other words, Jesus has given us access, and we have access to the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the reasons I love the book of Acts so much, Greg, is that uh, the disciples and the apostles even weren't always in tune with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter uh, made mistakes. Uh, uh, Barnabas made mistakes. They were they were carried away when the men who were supposedly from James they weren't really. But when they came and started to put pressure on 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 the the the, the people in, in Antioch uh, to um, uh, be Jewish and and make sure that the church remained 
Jewish. They had to be circumcised. They had to honor the Sabbath. They had to celebrate the festivals. And uh, Peter was misled. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you can read his letters. He said he was given uh, a, a, a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to buffet him in his flesh, uh, to keep him from being conceited or too conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations. So I love that the humanness of our Bible heroes is there. Um, the Apostle Thomas um, before, right after Jesus died, I won't believe unless I touch the the, the scars uh, in his hands and in his side. Uh, so, so they were very human, and and they weren't always in tune with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, on three separate occasions, wanted to go into Asia Minor to proclaim the word where it had never been proclaimed, and he was stopped by the Holy Spirit three times. So our walk with the Holy Spirit is doing what the Word tells us to do. It's not always supernatural feeling. It's not like, okay, we get a revelation from God. You know, Paul had a, a vision from the man from Macedonia, and, and he realized, hey, God's trying to tell me to go there instead. And it was a, it, it just, that, that's the way we walk, and we walk by trial and error. And the reason we walk by trial and error is because God is teaching us with each passing day to trust him more. Paul talks about going from faith to faith, from one level of faith to an increasing level of faith. And I think that's really the lesson in the book of Acts. You know, we're looking for goosebump experiences. Uh, we're looking for all kinds of mystical things. And God says, hey, just open the word, do what it says, and the power of the Holy Spirit will be with you. So uh, a lot of what we do as Christians uh, is, is to be determined as we take steps of faith, um, we respond in obedience to what the Word says, and then we obey and the Spirit of God sort of comes along and pushes us. And uh, uh, I, I think that's one of the great lessons of the book of Acts. So for that, um, um, Greg, um, that's, that's the, I think, the, the value of Acts. Uh, with Job, um, you know, the lessons of Job. Uh, uh, I've studied Job. I've got a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, study on our website at calvaryessay.com. And Job was one that I didn't really want to teach. And the reason I didn't want to teach is because I, I kind of have a tendency to live through what I'm teaching. And I wasn't eager to live through that kind of suffering and that kind of pain. Uh, but, but overall, the book of Job was a wonderful, wonderful experience for our church. We grew. And I think the thing that Job um, teaches us more than anything is that, that God, um, though he is invisible to us, uh, God is there. He's always there. And what we think we know about God really isn't sufficient compared to who and what he really is. Now, you'll know that the whole book of Job basically deals with the question of why. Uh, if Job is the most righteous man on the earth, um, uh, why did God let Satan attack him? Job would, would finally, after uh, being battered by his three not-so-good friends, um, uh, you know, they're making assumptions, well, Job, you must be in sin if these bad things. We think we got God figured out the way he acts. The reality is nobody knew anything. And Job, crying out to get these questions answered, Job came to the conclusion, you know, before I'd only heard about you, but now I've seen you. And that shut Job's mouth up. So I think the biggest takeaway from Job is that we who are believers shouldn't ask why. Instead of why, our question should be who, and it's Jesus Christ. And as we get close to him in, in our times of suffering, suffering that won't make sense to us many, many times, um, but when we get close to him, we find out what the Apostle Paul found out, that my grace is sufficient for you. And I think... Uh, Greg, that's that's a really important lesson. You know, we look around at things that are happening in the world. We look at Christians who are suffering, wonderful people that are being used by God, and we think, well, it's just not fair. Well, Job was kind of in that place. And in Job's case, he didn't know he was there. Remember, he started out really strong. If it happens, it happens. But at the end, he saw the Lord and he knew him better than ever before. Again, why God 
allowed Satan to inspect Job looking for an opening? Why did God permit Job's attack? Who knows? We'll get those questions answered when we get to heaven. But the, the benefit of Job, the beauty of Job, is that we learn how to deal with those unexpected things that happen in our lives. And I think, Greg, that's really, really important. Thank you very much, Greg, for the question. It's always good to hear from you. We're, we're already inside one minute, so I don't have time for any more questions. Let me say that, again, tonight we're going to be having an afterglow, not a Bible study. It is an opportunity for the gifts of the Spirit to function within the body. Nothing weird happens. It's beautiful in order. And if something weird would happen, we'd stop it. So it's a great time to hear from the Spirit of God and see what He wants to do. He has a message for each and every one of us if we'll just tune in. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Been a good week on the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back, Lord willing, on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.